Wow, you quieted down. You quieted down on me. Good morning. Good morning. Let me get set up up here. Hey, open your Bibles. Get your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5. My name is Pastor Dale. We're going to, uh, we're going to kind of do two things today. We've been through, if you've been here at Seacoast lately, uh, you know that we have been in the midst of a series through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be continuing that after Easter. In fact, we're going to continue it today as we're going to turn to a passage on the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus speaks about his confidence in the scriptures. And we're going to use this to kind of launch us into uh, Palm Sunday and Easter and do kind of a three-part mini-series that we are calling Irrefutable, Irrefutable Three Reasons for Faith. So if you're new, this is a great first Sunday to get here and connect with Seacoast. You're going to make sure that you catch this three-part series. It all kind of fits together. If you are thinking right now, oh man, I wish I would have told that friend that this was going to be talked about today. Number one, let them go online and listen to it. Number two, make sure they don't miss next week because it'll be continue to build on this. And, and uh, each week will fit together, but also stand alone. So Make this a three-week period in which you double your efforts to invite neighbors and friends right up now through Easter, okay? Love to meet you in the plaza afterwards, but let's pray and go to God's Word. Father God, thank you. Thanks so much for the, for the richness of Scripture. Thank you that you are God who communicates. Uh, you communicate to us because as a father, you love us. And Lord, just as we as dads might want our kids to listen to us, because what we say is important, but more, most importantly, it's what we say comes out of hearts that care about our kids. Thank you that you're that kind of a dad, except much more, much more loving, and that you're a dad that really wants to get through to us. So we ask you to speak through your word in Christ's name. Amen. Irrefutable. I like the word. One of our staff thought it up as we thought about exactly how to brand this next three-week series, Three Reasons for Faith. If you look up the word irrefutable in the dictionary, I uh, googled it this week, and here we go. It says this, definition, impossible to deny or disprove. The thesaurus on this is really rich. It says words like accurate, certain, double-checked, ironclad. Maybe the best thing is the phrase, you can bet on it. You can bet on it. Irrefutable. Subline, three reasons for faith. Now, for many of you, that will sound strange because in our culture, reason and faith are seldom used in the same sentence. Right? In fact, the culture, one of the common misunderstandings in our culture today is that faith is something that you believe without your reason. Faith is something you believe whether it makes sense or not. Faith is something you believe that even if it's unreasonable, you believe it. And in reality, what we're going to learn is that Jesus never asked his followers to turn off their reason, to turn off their brains in order to believe what he was teaching them. Jesus was never the kind of leader that asked his followers to just follow with what the culture often calls blind faith. The culture thinks of faith in that way, but it's not used that way in Scripture. Over the next three weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to look at three reasons why I believe we have an irrefutable, you can bet on it type 
of a faith. Why we can have confidence that what Jesus taught today and on other weeks, anywhere in Scripture, that what Jesus taught and what he, what he wants us to learn is truth that you can really trust. Today we're going to start with the theme of the Bible. Can you really trust it? Next week we'll look at Jesus. Was he truly unique? And why is it that we put our trust in Christ? And is he really different from other religious leaders? And why do we know that? Why do we not just believe it by faith, but why do we believe that it's irrefutable? The Bible, Jesus, and then on Easter, guess what? I picked the resurrection. Does that surprise you? Okay, yeah. But we're going to talk about the resurrection from a little different angle. We're going to talk about why is it that we believe it's not just a story, it's not just a religious myth, but it's history. It's true. It really happened. And why is it that we can think that there's irrefutable evidence for that? Today, as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount, though, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, and let Jesus begin to uh, kind of open our eyes to the idea of the Scriptures. Pick it up in verse 17. Let's read the passage in its entirety, 17 to 20. Here we go. Says Jesus says this, now do not think, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke. If you have a King James, uh, it'll, it'll say, I love this, not a single, what are the words, remember it? Jot or tittle, we'll explain that in a minute. Not a single jot or tittle, not a not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so um, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus uh, really leads with, one big idea in verse 17, and it's this. Don't get the wrong idea. Do not think that is how he leads into this passage. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law, that I've come to abolish the prophets or the law. Don't get the wrong idea is what he wants to fix. So you just got to understand where this thing is coming from. We've been studying Matthew chapter 5 in this great sermon by Jesus in which he has been kind of taking on religion and he's been challenging the common thinking of the religion of his day. He's been saying, it's not this, it's not this, but it's this. The path to the blessed life, to the good life uh, is different than what you've been taught. And Jesus had been confronting religious teaching that was off base. He had been confronting it. Do not think this, do not think this, do not think this. But instead, it's this, 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 and this. So now you can begin to think, maybe they're getting the wrong idea. Maybe they're thinking that Jesus is discounting all of Judaism. He's throwing the entire Old Testament out the window. And he's introducing a whole new religion. And he says, don't think that. He says, time out. Don't get the wrong idea. Yes, I'm criticizing the teaching of the day by the religious leaders, but I'm not criticizing the scriptures. So Jesus then goes on to say, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, verse 17, but to fulfill them. What's he mean by that? When you think of fulfilling Old Testament scripture, I think Jesus did it in at least four ways. He fulfilled and affirmed the scriptures. Here's at least four ways that he did it. Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. 
A lot of the Old Testament and the prophets spoke of Jesus. They spoke of him coming as Messiah and offering life. And Jesus said, I'm going to fulfill those prophecies. We'll come back to this later, both this week and next. Secondly, he fulfilled in that he modeled perfect obedience to the law. He fulfilled it in that he actually lived it out. No one else could live it out. Nobody else actually followed the the the, uh, the commands of God, but Jesus did. He lived in perfect obedience to Scripture. He modeled that when no one else could. He fulfilled it in obedience. Thirdly, this is very important. I think he fulfilled it in that he showed the Spirit, not just the letter of the law. You know, it's one thing to read the Old Testament and you read all these commands of God and, and, you know, and some of them seem strange to us even. But what Jesus was doing, and he's going to do it even more later in this sermon, we'll study after Easter, where Jesus will say, you have heard it said, remember this phrase, but I say to you, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he often speaks not just to the letter of the law, but the kind of the spirit of the law. So Jesus says, you know, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But, you know, the real issue is to deal with your heart and the issues of lust. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But, you know, what's really under that is you've got to deal with what's going on in the heart. And, and that is your anger. You've heard it said. You've heard it said. You know, so Jesus is going to correct the law by going to the spirit, not just the letter of the law. And fourthly, I think we're going to see Jesus wrote the final chapters of the story. He fulfilled the Old Testament in that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. He came as Messiah. He's going to actually write the final chapters of the story of the revelation of God as he lived that out. And now we read it in the New Testament. So I think in all four of those ways, the point is this. What is the main point? The main point is this. Jesus is saying, my teaching sounds different. My teaching has been critical of the religious leaders. My teaching has been critical of the way you've been, you've been taught to think about God and about life. You've been immersed in the religion of the day. But the rabbis have been missing the big idea. Because the big idea is that all of this scripture is designed to point to me. It's designed to point to Jesus. It's designed to point to Jesus Christ and what he would do on the cross and his death and resurrection. That's the focal point that even the beginning of the book of Genesis, when it talks about what God's going to do to fix sin, that it's all designed to point toward Jesus and the religious leaders of Jesus day. They didn't get that. So Jesus says, look, I, I don't don't misunderstand me. I'm going to be very critical of religion, but I'm not critical of the Old Testament. And then Jesus begins to explain what he, what he means by that. So don't get the wrong idea. I'm not throwing out the baby with the bathwater, okay? I'm not saying that the whole essence of the Old Testament scriptures are wrong. Jesus says, no, 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 don't get that idea. But instead, don't miss the main truth, point two. In verse 18, for truly I say to you, pick it up, verse 18. He says, for truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime you see that phrase, for truly, I say to you, it's a way that the Hebrews would emphasize. All right, what I'm about to lay down now is irrefutable truth. What I'm about to lay down now is something you can bet on. You can take to the bank. You know, you can, you can lay down your bet on this. And he says, truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest Jot or tittle, letter or stroke, shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Just kind of pull up there. The number one thing he says is this. The scriptures are true. You can believe them with confidence. 
You can believe him with confidence. Listen to what he talks about in the scriptures. He says, first of all, he says, until heaven and earth pass away. In other words, from now until the end of life as we know it on planet earth. In other words, for every generation, the scriptures still are true. They apply to every culture, every generation over time. They're not going to go out of date. Now, what other book can you think of that does that? See, when you think about other books that speak to moral issues and ethical issues and life issues and lifestyle and what's important, you know, most books are, are maybe good for a generation. But then the next generation says, ah, you know, I don't, I don't think that way anymore. And you get two generations away and you think, how many things do you and your grandparents agree on? How many things would you and your great grandparents agree on? And what Jesus is saying is you can believe this with confidence because until heaven and earth pass away, then the scriptures are still true. They are completely reliable. I love that little phrase, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away jot or tittle a jot was the smallest letter of the hebrew alphabet so if you were equate this to english it would be like the letter what i i guess boom a the a's are complicated Uh, you know okay anyway three strokes to make an a i'm sorry but yeah the i okay i'm voting for i the smallest letter not the first letter smallest letter of the hebrew alphabet okay okay rick work on that here we go but I, I like audience participation. That's okay. Number two, okay. The jot or tittle. The tittle in the Hebrew alphabet was like a little mark that they made uh, over over a letter to change its meaning. So in English, it would be like what? Like an apostrophe or a or a dot or or something like that. So just a little tiny point of punctuation that you'd make to change the meaning. So it's like a, the smallest letter or even less than a letter, a stroke. And Jesus is saying not a single small letter or even a stroke of the scriptures are not going to be fulfilled. What, he, you know, what he's doing, he, he's speaking kind of as a metaphor. But what he's saying is it to the, to the nth degree the scriptures can be trusted. He's reaffirming their reliability until all is accomplished. It will never go away. Secondly, he says this, he says, in fact, therefore, you should teach people to understand it and obey it. Verse 19, pick it up. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. You know, there's, if you're running around telling people, yeah, you can believe this part of the Bible, but you don't really need to buy into this part. He says, people that do that, that pick and choose what they believe and what they don't, He says, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But if you want to be called great in the kingdom of heaven, you keep it and you teach it. You keep it and you teach it. So you believe it with confidence. You obey it as a way of life. And then not just obey it as a way of life, but thirdly, you teach it to one another. So when you really believe it and when you then choose to live it out and obey it, and then when you, not only that, you communicate it to others, man, that's life. So, because this is truth. This is truth. One of the great uh, statements that I love is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just popped in my mind, where it says, Paul, the Apostle Paul describes himself, he says, wow, he says, I think of myself this way. I'm a servant of Christ, and I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. Wow. A keeper of the mysteries of God. That Just to think that you actually understand the mystery of God. 
because it's been revealed to us in Scripture. See, that's what it's all about. Believe it, obey it, teach it in terms of the word. Truly, I say to you, that is reliable. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, that's what Jesus says. But I'd like to take the rest of our time this morning and do something a little different. I'd like to go even beyond the scriptures themselves and ask, but can I really trust it? Can I really trust it? Jesus claims that the Bible is unique and reliable and trustworthy and you build your life on it. But, you know, other religions, right, they got their book. True or false? Yeah. So, you know, they say, yeah, you know, our holy guy, our prophet, our big kahuna, whoever, um, you know, that's the, whatever, you know, the, the, the big kahuna, he, 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 um, he's given us his holy book. And, you know, and, and how do we know that the Bible is distinctive? Or is this just something, well, we believe it because Jesus said it, but Jesus said it in the Bible. So, you know, you know, if, if you're, if you're taking a class in debate, they would say that's kind of circular reasoning. Uh, you know, it's, how do you know for sure that the Bible is the Word of God? And let, let me just share with you some of the things that, at least over my years of dealing with Scripture, have reinforced my confidence in the Bible. Number one, I think the first thing is the character of a loving God demands it. The character of a loving God demands it. Now, if you don't believe that there's a God at all, then maybe this doesn't help you. But if, but if God exists and if he is a, a powerful and loving God, which to tell you the truth, if he's not a loving God, I don't want anything to do with him. True? Yeah, I mean, he's not really worth getting up and coming at 9 o'clock at least. All right? The, the reality is if a loving God exists at all, you would expect him to communicate truth to his children. Even imperfect fathers and mothers do this all the time. Any mom or dad who loves their kids and knows that their kids need to learn things in order to make life work, you teach your children. You communicate to them. You want to get through to them. Why? Because you love them. I think the character of a loving God actually uh, commands this. You might want to say it this way, that in fact... A father who, what would you call a, a mom or a dad? Not picking on dads, but let's just narrow the field here. What would you call a dad who, like, oh, let's say, you know, if, if a kid disobeys, he's going to punish the child. But he doesn't tell the kid what the rules are. It, well, figure it out for yourself. You should just know it intuitively. So, you know, you don't really know, you know, you, you don't give them a clear curfew, but then they come in late and say, hey, you're too late. And they say, well, what do you mean I'm too late? You never told me when to come in. You, you know, a, a mom or a dad who actually um, punishes their kids without telling them the truth and telling them the guidelines and telling them their boundaries would be called abusive. And, 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 and in the same sense, I think if, if God actually... Uh, wants us to follow him, love him, uh, and, and engage with him, and he chooses to stay silent, then he is not a loving God. You can't have that. Any loving God will communicate. So we should be expecting God to communicate. But then you say, well, okay, but how do we know that the, that the Bible, that the scriptures are his communication? Secondly, I think a close examination of the Bible verifies it. It verifies it. What do I mean by that? 
I'm going to rattle off a lot of information here. So track with me quick. I'm going to give you five quick points that I think help us to where the, where a close look at the Bible shows that, wow, that's different. Wow. Maybe that's the fingerprints of God on the scriptures. Number one is it's remarkable preservation. The remarkable preservation of the Bible as an ancient book, as ancient material. Now, why do you say that? You've probably never thought about this, but the first question is, is our biblical text reliable? In other words, when you look at the Bible, how do we know that what we're reading today in English, which is translated from the Greek or Hebrew manuscripts that were preserved, okay, um, how do we even have confidence that we're reading what was written back then? Or has it been changed up? Well, the way you do that is you study the ancient text. And here's how an historian would do that. Let me dip into some history with you. Is the biblical text reliable? Let me compare it to two other well-known and often quoted people from history, Plato and Aristotle. Now, if you were to ask you, do most people in our culture believe in Plato? Would you say yes or no? Aristotle, yes or no? Yes. And would you believe that what we read, have you ever heard a history teacher say, well, this is what people think Plato wrote, but I don't really, you can't really know that. See, you know, I I mean, I took a a course in in Plato and Aristotle when I was at the university, and no one ever questioned the veracity or trustworthiness of their documents. But the reality is this. Plato was written around 347 B.C. It was when he wrote his major work. Earliest copy, the oldest copy of that goes back to about 900 A.D. That means there's a 1,200-year time gap between when he actually wrote it and, and then it was copied, 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 copied. We finally have a copy from around 900 A.D. That's a 1,200-year gap. How many copies are there that you can kind of compare to see if a small change was made? There's seven. Aristotle wrote in 322 B.C., earliest copy, 1100 A.D., 1400-year time gap, only five copies that you can compare to try to discern what, the actually, what he actually wrote. The New Testament, for example, was written over different books of it, written from about, from about 40 to 100 A.D. in that time period, The oldest copies that we have of portions date back to around 125 A.D. That's less than a 25-year time gap in which it was copied. Now, to try to discern whether it was changed, you look at all the various copies out there, and you can do a a textual study to try to figure out, you know, because if if like one person changed something, but the other people wouldn't be changing it, you you look at it, you can study all all of it and and determine what the original text really said. There's over 24,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts of the New Testament. That's amazing. So when you think about that and you say, do we have the accurate words of Jesus? Do we have what was actually written down by his closest followers? The answer is undeniably yes. That when it comes to historical accuracy, the preservation of the Bible is, is, is beyond any other ancient book that's ever, ever been written. If you can't trust the Bible as reliable, you can trust absolutely nothing in ancient history. It's amazing. One scholar wrote this. I like this quote. He said, The excessive skepticism shown toward the Bible 
by important historical schools of thought in the 18th and 19th century, which is when the Bible was being criticized by some of these schools of thought, has been progressively discredited. Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. It's preservation. You say, well, wow. Why the Bible? I think it shows the fingerprints of God's preservation of it. Number two, it's unity. This is an amazing point. The unity of thinking found in the scriptures is amazing. You say, well, why is that so amazing? Well, most books are written by how many authors? Answer? One. So you study that author, that's what they think. So you'd expect it always is consistent and agrees with itself, okay? Because it's written by one person. Well, see, we believe the Bible has how many authors? Well, one. <laughs> see, the point is we believe God is the author behind the authors. Now, if you, if you have one author behind the multiple people that God inspired to write different books of the Bible, because the Bible is actually not one book, it's a collection of 66 books. So you got 66 different books. Let me give you some numbers written by 40 different writers coming from very different backgrounds. Some were kings and, and scholars and others were peasants and fishermen. Okay. So they come from radically different backgrounds, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents and cultures, hundreds of spiritual and moral issues are being addressed. It's written over a time span from the earliest writings of the Old Testament to the New Testament, probably about a 1,500-year time span in which the thinking of culture changes, right? So if, if, if you had different authors writing and you know over hundreds of years, and they're all going to speak to a common moral issue or a common idea about God, you, you would expect all kinds of diverse opinions. But yet the Bible is consistent. And that what that does is it shows the hand of a common God guiding these authors. If you picked, and I heard one person put it this way, if you picked just one controversial issue of our day and you tried to find 10 different authors and you interviewed them on what do they think about this one controversial issue you'd have virtually no chance of getting 10 of them to agree. But yet when you look at the Bible, you get this amazing sense of unity. Okay. This amazing sense of unity in the scriptures. And it, and it speaks to the fact that, yeah, there must be a common God who is behind the writing of the scriptures. The unity gives me confidence. And number three, it's honesty. This is huge. It's honesty tells me that God must be behind it. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible, as it records its stories and histories, two things to take note of. Its heroes are never perfect. Its heroes commit all kinds of sins. Adam was the guy who started the problem, okay? He had his fall into sin. Noah got drunk and was naked in his tent. Abraham, another big hero of the faith, was a liar with lapses of faith. Moses lost his cool, committed murder and had all kinds of doubts about God. David, King David, committed adultery and murder. And the whole story is laid out for you to read and learn from. You say, well, Dale, isn't that how all history is written? No. 
It wasn't until just recent history that biographers began to actually tell the whole story about people. That's popular today, okay? Go ahead and trash them in their biographies. Tell all the good and the bad. That never happened in ancient times. If you read the biographical readings and stories of any of the kings of Egypt or the pharaohs of Egypt or the kings of Assyria or any of the other ancient histories, you never tell. Even something like they go to war, they lose, you don't tell it. Now, why is that? Well, because, you know, the, the, the historians worked for who? The king. Okay. Do you want to real, write a real honest biography of the king? What happens to you? How long does your career last? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you would be terminated for doing that. But the reality is the scriptures include the good, the bad, and the ugly about even its heroes. When the scriptures speak to tough issues, their answers are never politically correct. And what that is, again, it's, 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 it's a strong evidence that there's something very unique about the Bible, that the God of truth is actually behind it. It's honesty. Number four, it's accuracy, the accuracy of the scriptures. I don't have time to go into too much detail, but here's the quote of one um, Professor of archaeology from Yale University writes this. He says, archaeology has in many cases now refuted the views of the modern critics of the Bible. It has shown in a number of instances that these views rest on false assumptions and unreal artificial schemes of historical development. In other words, the reality is the more... It used to be people would say, oh, the Bible's wrong because it says that uh, Abraham had uh, camels. And, and we don't find any evidence of people where Abraham hung out in his time. Uh, they weren't using, camels were not domesticated animals yet. So the Bible is wrong. That's how they would say it back all oh, in the 1910, 1920s. And they would criticize the Bible. And here's another example of a mistake in the Bible. And then all of a sudden they dig somewhere, they get up a piece of ancient pottery and they date it to the time of Abraham. And lo and behold, it has pictures of people leading camels. And you go, oops, I guess they did have camels in Abraham's day. You know, and, and, and that's how archaeology continues as they dig deeper to actually reaffirm the Bible as historically accurate. Even in areas of science, there's a lot of scientific things in the Bible. Now, the Bible is not a science textbook, so you shouldn't expect scientifically um, precise language all the time. The Bible is not a science textbook. But when the Bible touches issues of science, it is reliable. In fact, it shows the evidence that God is behind it. Here's a great quote. Nobel Prize winner in physics, Arthur Compton, wrote this years ago. He said this. He said, for myself, faith begins with the realization that a supreme intelligence brought the universe into being and created man. It is not difficult for me to have this faith, for it is incontrovertible, synonym for irrefutable. (laughs) It is incontrovertible that where there is a plan, there is intelligence. An orderly unfolding universe testifies to the truth of the most majestic statement ever uttered in the beginning, God created. That's written by a Nobel Prize winner in physics. Another quote, let me roll on. The bottom line is 
the more you look at the scriptures in detail, they actually contain scientific truth that no one even knew at the time the Bible was written. Finally, it's prophecies. The prophecies of the scriptures affirm its reliability and the irrefutable fact that God must have been behind it. Since we're coming up to um, Good Friday and and uh, Easter, uh, let me focus and just show you one illustration, which I had, I think I slipped this into a sermon a few months ago, but let me give you the facts now that I looked them up. The prophecies of, the, of, of Christ's life and death, there are over 300 prophecies that speak to different aspects of the life and of the birth and the life and the death of Christ. Ancient prophecies written hundreds of years before they came true, okay? A, uh, a professor of statistical analysis from Stanford University had one of his graduate-level classes select eight of these, eight of the more major ones, like Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So you figure out, what are the odds of someone guessing that? Okay, they got lucky. Uh, you know, and, 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 he, and he figured the odds of eight of these, and just the odds of these eight, for all eight of those to come true and be guessed by mere humans, the odds are one times one to one times ten to the seventeenth power. That's 17 zeros. I don't know what you call that. You say, well, how big is that? It's like if you covered the state of Texas where Baylor University headed for the final four. Exactly. Okay. Not Michigan. Sorry. Maybe next year. But anyway, I'm just seeing what else wearing their colors today. Okay. You know, if, if the people at Baylor... Um, you know, because they're going to roll in the dough when they win the national championship. Anyway, uh, when they uh, want to be, but anyway, forget that. But anyway, here we go. The, the, the reality is, if they took the state of Texas, covered it two feet deep in silver dollars, and you had one chance to pick out the right one and you're blindfolded, those are the odds of, of these eight prophecies being accurately written and fulfilled in the life of one person. Now, does it take faith to believe the Bible? Yes. But is it a faith backed by reason? Irrefutable. Irrefutable. So the reality is, we as Christians, and this is why I wanted to give you this message today, you need to understand that when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, not one little stroke or letter of the law is going to pass away without being fulfilled. You can trust this book. This book is not a human book. This book is inspired by Almighty God because he loves you enough that he wanted to communicate to you. And that is the big idea of the morning. And you can trust it. If I were to give you some other argumentation, here's... Here's the rest of my quick points. Number one, number three, the third big idea, in other words, an examination of the Bible verifies it. The third big idea of the morning is the testimony of Jesus seals it. We'll come back to this in the next two weeks, but Jesus often quoted the scriptures and he would quote them as reliable. Thus saith the Lord, and he would lay down truth for life concerning life, God, and everything else. Thus saith the Lord. 92 times Jesus said that in the scriptures. 92 times. Jesus had a deep confidence in the scriptures. Now, here's the deal. If you, uh, I find a lot of modern 
Southern Californian Christians who say, you know something, I like Jesus, but I just don't like a lot of the other stuff in the Bible. The only problem with that is Jesus liked the other stuff. I met a man on a plane one time who was... Um, who was, who was uh, you know, he was investigating different types of spirituality. And he had discovered a, he told me, he says, he says, he learned I was a pastor. So he said, he says, boy, recently I actually saw a copy of the Bible where everything by Jesus was in red. He says, I really like that. I just read the red stuff. And I said, well, you know, the only thing is, I'm glad you're reading the red stuff. Keep reading the red stuff. But you realize that the guy who wrote the red stuff liked the black stuff. So you got to read the rest of it because Jesus said the rest of it is true. And if Jesus is who he said he is, the perfect son of God and your savior and mine, then when he affirms the Bible, we better quit picking and choosing which part of the scriptures we want to believe. And that's the American church to a large degree today. So don't don't go there. The testimony of Jesus supports the scriptures. If he's the son of God, the living word, then the Bible must be the inspired word of God. Number four, I like this one. You probably never thought of this one. The nature of man struggles with the Bible. In other words, my nature struggles against some of the things I read in the Bible. That convinces me that it's written by God. Why is that? Here's my argumentation. Here it is in writing. If I'm not God, and that's pretty much a given, true? You understand that? Good. Okay. Amen. Strong amen there from Bill. Yeah. Okay. If I'm not God, go ahead and bring this up on us. Yeah. If I'm not God, which is a given, and you're not, and the Bible is the word of God, I should expect it to challenge my mind and my morality. I should expect it to teach things about life and about morality and about sexuality and about money and about success and about all the things like that i should expect it to teach things that i say oh i don't like that i don't in my in my flesh agree with that even but yet it's true if everything in the bible made perfect sense to me then someone on my level wrote it And I'm not God. So expect it to challenge you. Expect it. Now what's the flip side of this that's more positive? The soul of man is nourished by it. There's my fifth reason I can trust the Bible. The soul of man for centuries and centuries is nourished by the scriptures. If you spend time every day opening the word of God and reading it, you will be amazed what it does As the Spirit of God and the person of Jesus, who's alive and well, that's two weeks from today, brings it to life. It nourishes your soul. Value it. So before the band comes to lead us in some worship, understand this. That God gave us the scriptures not only for revelation, but for a relationship. See, he didn't just give you the the, the Bible so you would have more information about God. He gave you the Bible so that you can have a relationship with God. And that's why the scriptures point to Jesus. That's why the scriptures point to a Christ who came and loved you enough to die for you. And he rose from the dead. He's alive today. And he wants to engage you in life through his word, through his spirit person of jesus christ is alive and well irrefutable is your faith
So the question is, are you engaging with this Jesus who said you can trust this book? If not, this is a great day to, to, uh, to reach out to him. Pray with me, okay, as the band comes. Father God, thank you so much for the person of Christ. Thank you so much for our Heavenly Father who, through his Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, inspired the Scriptures. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in them. Father, I thank you that, uh, that you loved us enough. You loved us enough to communicate with your kids. Wow. Forgive us for times that we just ignore you. You're wanting to speak to us. and We just leave the book closed. May we open the book more. May we believe it more deeply. May we, by, by the power of Christ within us, seek to follow it. Be changed and transformed by it that we might glorify and honor you with all of our lives. And Father, even now as we give, that's something you teach us to do in Scripture. You teach us to, to make you the highest priority of our, of, our, uh, of our assets, to be generous with you. We want to do that now. So we give to you as an act of worship. In Christ's name, amen.